0: Um, Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to get there in just a second. We're in week 4 right now of a series that we began, uh, obviously four weeks ago, called United, the Church's Mission of Reconciliation. Now, reconciliation seems to be specifically racial reconciliation has been kind of a front and center subject uh, for the past several months within our culture. It's not just been a subject just for the past several months, it's been something that we've been dealing with. Um, Pretty much throughout our entire history, we have not done a good job of reconciling humanity with one another. And the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and the list goes on and on, have kind of once again brought to light that although we we have moved on from a pretty unjust and dark history, as far as racial, uh, racial unity goes with slavery and segregation and Jim Crow laws, we've moved on from those things. There's still a dark shadow that looms over us. And I think it speaks to the fact that we may be able to legislate integration, but we have to see hearts change if we wanna see reconciliation take place. That's been the basis of the series that we've been looking at because the word speaks loud and clear to this issue that we're seeing. And let me say this. If we as a church look at the word of God and say that this is our handbook for how we live our lives, we have to understand that everything that we face, the Bible speaks to that. That to say that if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and if Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother, that there is not a thing that we will face in our culture, in our lives, that the Bible does not offer us hope that Jesus is not, because if the Bible doesn't speak to it, if the Bible can't offer us help and hope and truth, then that means he's left us on our own in something. And I don't believe that we serve a God, a heavenly father or a savior that leaves us alone. He is with us every single day. See, there's a racial divide that we're seeing within our country today, and it's rooted in hurt. It's rooted in hate and fear. It's rooted in ignorance that cannot be legislated away. It has to be changed at the heart level. And as believers as people of the cross, as people of the word of God, we have to understand that our faith is applicable to every facet of our lives. The word of God, the God of the word should invade and should envelop every aspect of our lives. And we have to hold to the position that the word of God instructs us and informs us on the matters of the day. And we have to hold to the belief and the truth that the God of the word, cares about the matters of our day because he cares about the people that are in, enduring the matters of the day. We are the chief of his creation. He is watching us. The Bible says that he looks down from his throne in heaven and he looks over us. That G- he, When he saw us in our greatest need of sin, he, pro- he provided us with the solution of Jesus Christ. You see, the word tells us uh, that the divide that we're reeling from is rooted in more than just hurt and pain, and ignorance and history. The hurt that we're reeling from and that we're seeing in our culture today stems from a bigger problem and that is sin. It's a bigger problem with a smaller word and that is sin. All of what we see and all of what we are facing today is a manifestation of the biggest common problem that we all have is our sin. So we don't have a skin problem, we have a sin problem. We don't have a political problem, we have a sin problem. Our problems come from that because sin divides, sin separates, sin destroys. But you see, sin, unfortunately, is the current order of this world, right? We live in a broken, fallen world. We're born with a flesh nature. We're born into sin. The moment we're born, we're dead. I'm gonna talk about that a little bit more, and you're like, oh, goody, I can't wait for that one. Yeah, let's talk more about how we're dead. But you see, sin is the current order of the world. Now, one day, one day, the hope is that it will be restored, just like we sang about. His kingdom is coming. But here's the thing we have to understand, church. We are the kingdom right now. We are the kingdom of God today, the embassy of heaven, the light of the world, the salt of the earth. And we have to bring flavor to the world. And so I've said it every message, so let me go ahead and say it this time as well. Reconciliation, whether it be racial reconciliation or otherwise, is a God-ordained, Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, gospel-driven function of the church of Jesus Christ. And it is an imperative function. It's not optional. It's not something to say, well, that's nice for that church to get involved in. It's every church must be involved in reconciling man to God and being reconciled to one another through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not an optional thing. It's something we must do. And it's not political activism. It's not, it's not ideology. It's the truth of God's word that brings us to a place of reconciliation with one another. So today, this morning, and, and next Sunday, we're going to be looking at the revolutionary nature of the gospel. There's a lot of talk about revolution in our culture today. Say, oh, things need to be turned upside down. We need to get rid of law enforcement. We need to change this law. We need to do this. We need to just flip everything on its head and everything will be better because it's saying that the system is broken. Here's the thing. What we're looking at, the gospel presents a a revolution of the soul, a revolution of the heart. And I don't believe that until the revolution of the soul takes place, we're gonna continue to spin our wheels and shuffle our feet at the revolution of society. So let's look this morning um, at the book of Ephesians chapter four, and as we read this morning, I want you to note the revolutionary language that Paul uses in verses 17 through 25. And I'm reading this morning from the Christian Standard Bible, so follow along with me if you will, or you can follow along on the screen. It says this, Therefore, I say this and I testify in the Lord that you should no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. Now, Gentile is used in a couple of different ways in scripture. It's used as a cultural explanation or cultural indicative, but it's also used as a spiritual indicative as well. Gentiles being those who are outside of Christ, talking about those who do not know Christ live by uh, an ungodly culture. He says, don't live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts, for they are darkened in their understanding. They are excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and they gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ. Now this is, the, this is the verse that everything hinges on, but that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. To take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one that is created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth each one to his neighbor because we are members of one another. Heavenly Father, I bow in your presence this morning and we thank you and we praise you because you are good. You are all good. There is nothing about you that is not good. You are holy. There is nothing about you that is not holy. You are righteous. There is nothing about you that is not righteous. Father, we know that we are not good. We know that we are not holy. We know that we are not righteous. But because of your love and your grace and your mercy, you have reconciled us to yourself through Jesus Christ. We thank you for that, Lord. And we know as your church, as your people, we have been called to reconcile others through the gospel to you, Lord God. And then as we are reconciled to you, we are reconciled to one another. We stand before you today as a people who are hurting because we look around and we see our world, we see the things that are taking place in our country, in our nation and in our communities, maybe sometimes even in our own homes, the division that is taking place, and we know that all of it comes from this one root of sin. We pray, Lord Jesus, that as your church, we would be fueled and that we would be challenged to be agents of peace, to deliver the gospel of Jesus Christ, that tells the truth in the and sheds light in the midst of the darkness. We pray this morning, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Guide this time. I pray this morning that I would say nothing that would hinder your word from going forth. In Jesus' precious name we pray, and God's church said, amen. Our text this morning is really a continuation of the first half that we looked at last week. See, what's the very first word in verse number 17 where we picked up this morning? It's the word, therefore, right? Let me, let, me, let me give you something really, really deep. Anytime you see the word therefore in Scripture, you ask a question. You ask, what is therefore, therefore? You like that one? That was good. That's deep. That's something you need to take with you right there. We, what was basically saying is, it's saying in continuance, or in light of what we have just talked about, now let's talk about this. And what Paul is saying is, we have talked about in verses one through 16, the way the church should operate with the church. That we should be unified, that we should embrace diversity, and that we should move on towards maturity. Those are the three points from last Sunday's message. That we should embrace unity, realizing that we are not the same, but we have the same direction. Now, if everybody's like me, that's not unity. That's not unity. That's a sad existence if everybody's like me. Or if everybody's like you, that's not unity. Unity is this, not everybody having the same mind, but everybody having the same direction and the same focus. That's the church. Because we have to embrace the diversity that we have. We're not the same people. We all don't have the same mind, but we've been given the same heart and the same direction. Some are hands, some are feet, some are eyes, some are ears, some are fingers, some are thumbs. God embraces and, and wants the church to embrace the diversity because we can accomplish more in our differences together moving towards the same direction. And then we have to embrace maturity. And without maturity, unity and diversity begin to fail. And I think that's one of the saddest commentaries on today's church today, is we have traded in moving on to maturity and being, having Christ formed in us to other things, being formed in other things and other ideas and other ideologies, Christ is the one who must be formed in us. I love what Warren Wearsby says in his commentary about this. He says, the first part of chapter four described the believer's relationship to the church. Now, Paul deals with the believer's relationship with the world. Certainly, we are in Christ. We are a part of his body, but we are also in the world where there is temptation and there is defilement all around us. We cannot depart from the world because we have a God-given responsibility to witness to the world. But we must learn to walk in purity and not live in that same defilement. In other words, once we've been saved, we need to embrace our savedness. That's a, that's a word, right? I just made that one up, I think. Once we're saved, we need to embrace the salvation that we've been given. But too often, we fall into that temptation. We begin to look for the license that we can find. Well, now that I'm saved, I don't have to worry about going to hell, so I can just embrace all the sin that I used to do and enjoy it now without any consequences. No, well, that's not how it works. Once we're saved, we move on to maturity in Jesus Christ. He begins to increase in us and we begin to decrease. In other words, what we're saying is if we're revolutionized by the gospel of Jesus Christ, if our world has been made new, if we have been made new, as the Bible says, then we should live as revolutionaries for the gospel. If our lives have been revolutionized by the gospel, we live as revolutionaries for the gospel. Now, history has given us a lot of revolutionaries, hasn't it? I, I, I'm a student of history. I love, I love history. I love to learn the lessons from the past. I love to see people and, and see you know, what was the context and what, what made them do the things that they do. But there's, history's given us some revolutionaries. Now, I'm not gonna get into like, you know, governmental revolutionaries, but I wanna think about people who have taken good things in our culture and made them better. One of those guys is Michael Jordan. I grew up in the 90s, and so Michael Jordan is like the best basketball player, and there is no argument. You LeBron James lovers, I'm gonna pray for you to get saved, okay? Now, I don't wanna start a problem, and I know the comments may start going crazy on the Facebook post. but MJ is better than Michael Jordan. Or MJ is better, is so good, he's better than himself. No, MJ is better than LeBron. Now, you can argue about that later on if you want to, and you can be wrong if you want to. That's fine, okay? MJ revolutionized the game of basketball. All of a sudden, you had to have cool shoes to play. You had to do dunks. You had to stick your tongue out. You had to have the. You had to fly. Everybody wanted to be like Mike. I drank more Gatorade than I probably should have because Michael drank Gatorade. It didn't make me Michael, but I wanted to feel like Michael and do what Michael did. Here's the thing, though. MJ became MJ because there was a guy before him named Dr. J who normalized the dunk in the middle of a basketball game. So Dr. J revolutionized the game by bringing the dunk to the game, and then MJ brought the dunk and made it awesome, and then LeBron, you know, he does what he does. But anyway, MJ revolutionized the game of basketball. Shopping. Anybody ever heard of this little company known as Amazon? And It's a little-known company that you may not know much about, Amazon has revolutionized the way we shop, right? I don't have to leave my house anymore to get anything that I want. Matter of fact, I can get a lot of stuff that I don't need and it can be at my house within two days if I'm a Prime member. I'm not advertising for Amazon, but I should get some royalties for being a commercial for them right now. But Amazon revolutionized shopping. You don't have to get out of your car, go to the store, do all that type of stuff. You just click it and it, it comes to you now. Back in, back in the early days, Um, there was a guy named Alexander Graham Bell who thought, you know what, just sending out Morse code to people over the Marconi Marconi, uh, uh, graph or whatever it was called, so there's got to be a better way to communicate, so he invented the telephone. And all of a sudden, people could talk to one another and hear their voices. Then several decades later, another guy came along to revolutionize the communication industry named Steve Jobs. And he created this phone, said, I don't want it to be connected to a line, I want it to be, uh, you can carry it wherever you want to go, and let's not just make it a phone, let's make it a computer that you can take with you, and let's make it a camera, and let's make it uh, all kinds of different things. We're going to revolutionize communication, and instead of talking to one another, now we're going to go back to just tapping stuff out. See how that all works? It all came full circle, right? But he revolutionized the way that we communicate. Some may say for the better, some may say for the worse, Back in the 1500s, there was a man named Johann Gutenberg who said the written word should be available to the masses. So he invented the movable type printing press to make literature and to make books available to all. And first of all, first and foremost, Bibles. And that began the Protestant Revolution, or the Protestant uh, Reformation, which revolutionized the way we do things. And it brought about the Enlightenment, and it brought about uh, the widespread need for literacy in our world. These people took good things and made them better and changed our world for the better, that the world would never be the same after that. The greatest revolutionary of all was one who combated something that was wrong and destroyed it and, made it and brought in something that was good, and that's Jesus Christ. In verse number 20 of our text, we see this. He says, that is not how you know Christ. He said, your old life and your old way of living in darkness and in, and in destitute spiritual poverty, that's not how you came to know Christ. Christ is the greatest revolutionary of all. The gospel is the revolutionary message of all time. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but Jesus came, God himself came, put on flesh, became man so that we could have eternal life. So the big idea this morning as we move into our points is that the gospel of Christ compels us to live in a revolutionary way from what we know in the flesh. We live in a world system that is operate and run and reigned and ruled by the flesh and by the sin nature. But the church, children of God, we're not called to that same type of life. We're not called to that same type of existence, ruled and reigned by sin and death. We're called to an existence ruled and reigned by life and by righteousness and by truth. So our passage reveals, within, our passage reveals, uh, all the way through chapter five, verse number two, gives us six things that Christ and the gospel revolutionize. Six things that we're used to in our flesh that Christ revolutionizes and turns it on its end, and gives and replaces it with something better. The first thing that we look at this morning, we're going to look at three of them this morning, and the next Sunday we'll look at the final three as we wrap up this series. But the first thing as we pursue unity, as we pursue a reconciliation with one another, we have to understand that Jesus replaces death with life. We must see the, the, the flesh, death in the flesh, overcome with life in Christ. That's in verses 17 uh, through 19. See, what we have to understand about the flesh is that the flesh only produces a culture of death. To live according to our sins... The Bible says, the wages of sin is, help me out here, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's look back in our text again at verse uh, number 17, because Paul's gonna give us this flashback picture of what we were like without Christ. And in verse number 17, he says, therefore, I say this, and I testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts, meaning that whatever they try to do, everything they try to do, even their best thoughts, without Christ, are going to fall short of God's intention for us. And then he gives us five things. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and they gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and for more and for more. So let's see this, this this picture, this flashback picture of what we were like without Christ. And he reminds us, he says, look, look, Ephesus Church, Church at Ephesus, look, Graceway Church, whatever church you want to be. You have to realize that where you are today is not, is nothing like where you came from, where I brought you from. Christ replaced that culture of death with a culture of life. But here's what the culture of death looked like. You were darkened in your understanding. It's like trying to wander around in a darkened room. Uh, as I'm getting older, I find myself waking up in the middle of the night and I need some water or maybe a midnight snack or two or need to go to the restroom or whatever, but there's always this minefield that is left out for me. Either the kids have left something on the floor or I've left my shoes on the floor or whatever, so I find myself just walking very cautiously and holding on to things as I'm walking through the dark trying to get my eyes to adjust. And this is what it's like spiritually in the culture of death. We're wandering around in the dark, holding on, grasping for anything and everything to give us stability, only to find out that the only thing that we can grasp on to give us eternal stability is Jesus Christ. And everything else that we grab on will eventually lead us down the wrong path, and we can't completely and truly trust it. Because Jesus Christ is the light of the world. See, what really makes it easy to walk is when there's light shed on the room. You see, Because we're dark, now we're dead in our sin. And this is the kind of death that is worse than physical death. It's a conscious death. It's one that is being dead and unfulfilled without the ability to change anything on your own. You ever notice that dead people stay dead? They can't bring themselves back to life. Dead people can't turn over new leaves. You know, a a lot of us say, well, you know what? I think faith is just about doing better and being a better person. That's not what faith is about. Faith is about realizing that I'm dead and I can do nothing for myself. Jesus gave me life. But you see, without Christ, we're dead in our sin. And thank God that he is more than enough and he brings us to life. In our death and sin, we're also ignorant of the truth. See, we're ignorant of the truth because we're walking around in the dark. And we don't know where to look. We'll grab hold of this, we'll grab hold of that or that thought or this, or this book or whatever we can try to find. Money, power, sex, whatever we can find hoping that that will be the answer. But just like all the other world's kingdoms, it crumbles like sand. And then what happens is we become ignorant of the truth, not knowing where to turn, and we get burned so much that the next thing happens that we become hard-hearted or callous to the truth. So that when the gospel is produced, we think, ah, it's just another another easy fix-it solution that's just gonna tear me down too. And so we look at the gospel and we look at the truth and we become hardened to it because we're so burnt and so jaded I'm so calloused. And then what it ends up resulting in, we become totally surrendered. We're like, well, you know what? If this is all there is, if I'm just gonna live and die and there's no help and no hope, then I'm just gonna do whatever I can to enjoy what I've got while I've got it while I wait on death. And folks, that's the ultimate outcome of the culture of death. We turn inward and divide from everybody else because life is only about getting what I can get and enjoying the little bit of time I have it. How hopeless and how pointless, how futile is that kind of life? And just two chapters before, Paul paints the exact same picture in Ephesians chapter two. Why does he do this? Because in biblical writing, in the ancient style of writing, when you repeat ideas and thoughts very close to one another, it's saying and it's screaming to the reader, get this, don't miss this, it's important. Repetition is the key to learning. And he says in Ephesians two, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. According to the ruler of the power of the air, now the spirit, now working in the disobedient, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. You see, that's the picture of what we were without Christ, but, and I'm so thankful, I'm so thankful that's not the way we're left. Look at verse number 20. But that is not how you came to know Christ. What it's basically saying is that ain't the gospel, and if you know Christ, this ain't you anymore, praise God, right? This is not you, you are not darkened, you are not ignorant, you are not dead, you are not hard-hearted, you don't have to be at least, you don't have to be surrendered to sin, you can have life, because while the flesh presents a culture of death, the gospel presents a culture of life. It's not how you came to know Christ. The gospel is teeming with life. The gospel message is teeming with hope. And the gospel message is not just a one-stop shop that we come to to get saved and then we move on to something else. No, the gospel is what sanctifies us. The gospel is what grows us. It's what unites us. It's what reconciles us. The gospel is a prevalent part of everyday Christian living. It's not just the story of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. The gospel is the changing power of Jesus Christ. And here's what the gospel says. Every time you see Jesus mentioned, life follows. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have, help me out, everlasting life. Not just life, everlasting life. Life that doesn't end. John chapter 10, verse 10 says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I have come that you may have life, and you might have it in abundance. Not just a little bit of life, but all kinds of life. Spilling over <laughs> spilling over on others around you. Isn't that what the gospel is supposed to be doing too? See, as the church, we have to understand, we're the culture of life. And that doesn't just speak to a political position, or to an idea idea that abortion is wrong, which we believe it is wrong, it is sin, it is murder. But it goes further than that. We are the culture of life, meaning that all life, all human life is created in the image of God and we love them and care for them. Do we acknowledge and do we compromise on sin and morality? No, but we never compromise on our command to love one another like Christ loved us. God, our creator, gave us life. His son died to redeem life, and the spirit lives to empower our life. So we overcome this culture of death with the culture of life. The second thing that we have to do, the second confrontation in this revolution of the gospel is to overcome our old ways with a new order. Overcome our old ways with a new order. So we saw the old ways in verses 17 through 19. Now we're introduced to this new order, this new system, this new way of living, this new culture. So what does it look like? Well, in verse number 20, he says, you've not come to know Christ this way. And here's in verse 21. This is important. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth in Jesus. Paul makes a very, very important note there when he talks about the gospel of Christ. He says, make sure you've heard the true gospel, not a false gospel, not a Jesus who's boxed in to an idea that you've created, but the Jesus of the word. And he says this, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one that is created according to God's likeness and the righteousness and purity of the truth. So what we see about this new order, this new way of life, it it is found in Christ and it is not found anywhere outside of Christ. Our life is in Jesus. Outside of Christ, we find death. Outside of Christ, we find sin. Outside of Christ, we find division and hurt pain. What we understand from this is that the gospel changes everything. It changes everything. It changes the nature of all. Of it. Let that statement sink in. The gospel changes everything. This is why I believe, and I stubbornly believe, that the church is essential. That it cannot just fade off into oblivion. That it cannot just go back behind closed doors. That the church is essential because the church is founded upon and fueled by the gospel and the gospel has changed everything. It changes death to life. It changes dark to light. It changes hopelessness to confidence. It changes the enslaved to being free. It changes the far from God to being drawn near to him, and it changes the divided to being united in Jesus Christ. The gospel changes everything, and that makes it the most essential message in the world. The gospel revolutionized our lives. Listen, if the gospel hasn't changed your life, you may want to go back and find out if you've, truly, if you've truly trusted Christ. The gospel changes death to life, dark to light, all of these things. It revolutionizes our lives, and the church has to walk each day with the unwavering belief that the gospel has the power to revolutionize the world that we live in today. We have to understand that it, a new order is a, is a life that is radically different from the old life, from the old way of life. He says in verse number 21, he says, assuming that you heard about him and were taught by him. See, this is important because there are, there is a lot of different gospels out there, but there's the true gospel that is founded upon Christ, but there are a lot of false gospels that say, here's Jesus, but we gotta add something or we gotta change something in order for you to really fall into what the true gospel is about. That's what was going on in Ephesus. People trying to say, yes, get saved in Jesus, but then do this, 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 and this to truly be saved or to keep your salvation. And there are a lot of false gospels. And here's what happens in false gospels. We take this box of man-made idea or ideology and we put Jesus in it and say, Jesus has to fit in here in order for it to work. But Jesus doesn't fit in a box. We fit in Jesus. Jesus doesn't fit in a box. These man-made ideas. We can't look at Jesus and put him inside our frame and our filter. Jesus breaks the filters that are there. That means that when you come to Christ, all your old filters are shattered. All your old filters of sin and shame and regret and death, they're shattered. Here's the thing, you're not even looking in the same direction anymore when you come to Christ. Shame and regret and the culture of death has you looking backward at all the things that have brought you down. But the culture of life, the gospel brings you to a place where you look up to him and he then directs you forward in him. So there's three steps that we embrace in this new order of Christ. He uses this language, kind of like clothes, all right? How many of you like clothes? Okay, not enough of you. I just worry that, you know, I'm just glad you put some on when you came today to church. Uh, You may be watching on the internet and who knows if you've got clothes on. Who knows? But I like clothes. I like them when they fit and when they look right on me, right? But he uses this language. He says, put off, put on, and put away. Three phrases that we see here in our text. He says, take off the old way or take off the former things, like those old nasty clothes that you don't have any business wearing anymore. And let's just say nobody else has any business wearing it anymore either. Y'all wanna know a little something disgusting about me? I got these t-shirts that I wear as undershirts and they get old and nasty and they get holes in them. I hold on to them until Stacy finally gets rid of them. Those are the things that you don't even pack up and take to goodwill to bless somebody else with, right? Because ain't nobody got no business wearing some of that stuff. You didn't have any business wearing it when you bought it, but you still did. He says, take off the old clothes and put on the new image of God, of Christ-likeness. Like John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. And then he says to put away, in verse 25, he says, put away some things. And he gives his whole list and we're gonna start with the first one this week and then we're gonna look at the next ones next week. He says, put away, in verse number twi- 25, put away lying and speak the truth, each one to his neighbor. And that's the third thing and the final thing as we get ready to close out this morning. We overcome the flesh and death with the life of Jesus Christ. We overcome the deceit with, lo- with truth. We overcome the deceit with the truth of God's word. Put away lying, speak the truth each one to his neighbor because we are members of one another. You know, today's 24 hour, seven day a week news cycle, you know, and and, and social media posts and everybody's got an opinion and everybody's got a view and YouTube and all this stuff. You have to really be careful about what is true and what is false. And here's the thing, you wonder sometimes everything, and I've come to the conclusion that everything I get is gonna come with some sort of spin and some sort of angle that to really accept something as a factual thing, you have to be there to experience it yourself. Take it in with your own eyes, you say, that's a real skeptical way of looking at things. But here's the thing, I think it's a biblical thing. Jeremiah over in the Old Testament said this, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately wicked who can know it. He says we have to approach things with a cynicism of understanding that we can't even trust ourselves in our flesh nature that there is, that there is a, there's a nature of deception and a way of deception that we live in. And it's gonna show up in the news, it's gonna show up in the world, it's gonna show up in everything. And it's gonna even show up in our own hearts. What this means is, it doesn't just mean that at the core, we are gullible and wired to believe lies. We are gullible and wired to believe the deception. But it also is saying That gossip and slander travels faster than truth. Why? Because we enjoy the deception. Not only that we're gullible to believe it, but that we in our flesh crave it. We like the deception. It's more fun. It's more tantalizing. It's juicier. That's why gossip travels faster than truth. Because it's in our human nature. How messed up is that? Not only are we gullible to be deceived, but we like being deceived. That's messed up but this is the way, this is the old order, this is the old way, and this is why Paul says, put away deception, put away lying. And that word put away means continually put away. It doesn't mean I put it away in a box and it doesn't come back anymore. It means that it's gonna continue to come into my my view. It's gonna continually be at my doorstep, and I need to be vigilant about continuing to look to the truth of God's word. And he says to combat that, you put away lying by sharing truth. We put away falsehoods. We put away lying by sharing truth. I love what Dr. Roger, Dr., uh, Dr. Adrian Rogers said in a sermon several years back before he went to heaven. He said, if your life is not based on absolute, total, impeccable truth, then you have just created a climate where the devil will always feel welcome. Get that. And In our church, if we've not created a climate where the truth can prevail, we've created a climate where Satan can and the house of God should be a house of truth. The people of God should be people of truth, not the house and people of lies. See, what John 10, 10, says is the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus says, I've come that you might have it more abundantly. Satan's plan is not just to trick us, and make us have a bad day. Satan's plan is to steal everything, kill us and destroy us, pick us clean of any humanity that we have and destroy everyone and everything in his process. And one of the ways that he does this is through division and through discord. And Proverbs tells us this, that we are better together. This is where we get our state motto from. United we stand and divided we fall. But if we're divided and we're at odds and we're sectioned off into our little camps, always clashing with one another, then we become way easier to defeat and to to conquer and to destroy. And don't think for a minute that our enemies, foreign and domestic, look at our division and don't think that now we're weak enough to, to conquer. Same thing with the church. When we're fighting, we're, we're constantly complaining about things and we're at each other's throats. How are we ever gonna come together for the purpose of reaching the world for Christ? To love others if we can't even love ourselves. And this is exactly how Satan works. Sin sets the world at fundamental odds with God and his church. But I believe today, I believe today, that Satan is working overtime to set the church at odds with the world. He's convinced us that we can gain gospel ground through political power and man-made ideologies or through moral and spiritual compromise when all of that stuff shuffles us into man-made camps and ideologies and theologies that are just sandcastles. When we as the church have been called and commissioned to build his kingdom on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. The damage of deceit that entraps us from the freedom that is brought to us through truth. See, the truth is our only defense. He says, speak the truth with his neighbor. <clears throat> we have a little time here in our life. Some of us will get 60, some of us may get less. Some of us will get 70, some of us may get less. 80, we have little time on this earth. You wanna spend your time speaking lies that, dis- that, that divide, or you wanna spend it speaking truth that beckons people to life in Christ? The command is that we put away lying and speak the truth. Who's to speak the truth? The Bible says, speak the truth, one to his neighbor. And what is the truth? Well, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. And here's the result of sharing the truth. In John chapter 8, it says that you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. See, there's freedom in the truth, and there's freedom in Jesus You're saying, are you so narrow-minded and shallow to believe that Jesus is the answer to the problems that we're facing today? Let me slow down so I can say this for the people in the back and the people that are listening. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I am that stubborn and I'm that narrow-minded. Because I'm not talking about putting Jesus in a box. I'm talking about we need to share the truth from the word of God that's being formed in us every day. I'm not talking about the Republican or the Democrat Jesus or the black Jesus or the white Jesus or any other Jesus that we make in our own image. I'm talking about the Jesus of the word of God, the Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the great counselor that is one day coming to rule and to reign here. See, the truth is our common bond. He says, share each one with his neighbor because we are every one members of another. Why do we need the truth? Why do we need to share the truth? Because we lived a life where we needed the truth. And everyone, regardless of skin color, regardless of what nation you come from, regardless of what politics you have, every one of us come together at this one common denominator. We're sinners in need of a savior. Every one of us. So the challenge for us as the people of the cross is to keep our eyes fixed on the cross. The challenge for us that are people of the word is to keep our lives centered upon the word. So what we have to do, if we want to find reconciliation, realizing that we are all bonded together by the same need, is we have to keep keep our eyes fixed on the solution. We have to realize that black skin and white skin are only reconciled to one another through the red blood of Jesus Christ. We have to stop leaning in on red elephants and blue donkeys and find our hope in the sacrificed lamb of God. We have to stop worrying so much and caring so much about how a person feels about symbols and statues and flags and start shedding tears over whether or not they've been to the cross. And I know I say that at great risk of people getting mad and thinking I have some agenda, I don't. The agenda I have is the agenda of the gospel. And that has to be the agenda of his church. Of all the inequality and the division in our world, the question that we have to close with and the question that we have to pose to everyone is Have you been to the cross of Calvary? And so, with every head bowed and eye closed this morning, I ask you this question and I ask it every single week Do you know Christ? Have you been to the cross? He's our only salvation. He's our only deliverance from the culture of death. He's the only truth that we can weigh anchor in. Do you know him? If you don't know him, let today be the day of salvation. Let today be the day that you come to him and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I need you. The Bible says that for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We reap death and division and separation from God and from one another through our sin. But Jesus came when he shouldn't have, when he was the righteous one and really didn't need to. He came so we could have eternal life. Will you trust him? Will you repent of your sins? Will you draw close to him? If you don't know Christ, you're watching today or you're here this morning, know this, that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Realize your need for a sinner, or realize your need for a Savior, and come to Him and be saved today. But, church, let me ask you this what about you? Have you grown maybe apathetic to the life that you have in Christ, maybe forgotten the the pit from which you've been drugged? You looked at verses 17 through 19, you're like, man, I forgot that this was me if it wasn't for the goodness of God. Or maybe have you been taking it for granted? Or maybe have you been looking at it and allowing it to make you a little pious and when you look at people, instead of it bringing a heartfelt Christ-like response, it brings judgmentalism and it uh, it brings skepticism of people who may not know Christ yet. Jesus could have stood in eternal judgment of us but the bible says he came and he says come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden i'll give you rest the church of jesus christ needs to be a place where we find rest in jesus we need to be part of that and part and parcel of that have you found rest in jesus do you need to find rest in jesus as we come to the conclusion of this week's message we pray that it has ministered to you and challenged you from the word of god We would love to hear from you. If you would like to connect with us, you can go to www.gracewaylegs.org. Click on Contact Us, and we would love to have a discussion with you about your faith. Thank you. We'll talk to you again next week.